Well, good morning. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. A real honor, and thank you for your kind words, uh, Mark. And uh, just to be clear, yes, I'm not from Texas. Just, there's a couple of things I need to say when I go and speak at different groups, just so that the relationship flows the way it should. That's usually the first one, and I'm from a little uh, east of Texas, and it's not Louisiana either. It's a little bit further across the pond from a little country called Northern Ireland. Uh, and it's a big deal for us. The northern bit's not just a geographical notation. It's an entirely different sovereign state. Now, I say that uh, because in a few moments, you're probably going to begin to drift and tune out. Uh, you'll struggle with my accent. So to do me a great favor, I just want you to assume that what you didn't understand was really, really good. <laughs> really good. Just take that with you. Second thing is, is to clarify that I'm not Alistair Begg, so uh, <laughs> dial down the expectations. And unlike Greg, I'm not going to pass myself off as somebody that I'm not, because <laughs> that could backfire. <laughs> that could backfire. Now, at some point as well, I'm going to lose your attention, because you're going to be sitting there going, who does this chap sound like? And for self-interest, because I want you focused on the Word of God, not your mind wandering, I want to sort of preempt that thought and tell you who it is that you think that I am. It's not a voice on the television. It's not a voice on the radio. According to my students, it's none other than Shrek himself. <laughs> so I'm assured that I sound like him, don't look like him. So behave yourselves. And so this is your first Shrek sermon, I believe, and hopefully it's a good one. So that behind us, uh, let me take you to the Word of God. And of course, in these speaker choice sessions, we get to choose what we want to speak on. And so I've chosen two passages in the Gospel of Mark, two incidents in the life of Christ that I find have become some of my favorite incidents as he interacts with uh, two very different individuals. And the first one today is in Mark 12, Mark chapter 12. And it's a very familiar passage to you if you have been walking with the Lord for a little while. It's the passage that deals with the greatest commandment. And while it's very familiar to you, I don't apologize for the fact that I'm going to refresh you in it because it should be a daily reminder to all believers every day, being refreshed in the, in the teaching that is found in this wonderful passage. Now, it comes in the context of a series of clashes. We're in Jesus last week, and it's what's come to be known as Holy Week. And of course, Holy Week is holy in the grand scheme of things, certainly closer to the end of the week when our Lord goes to the cross, is buried and is risen from the grave and opens up the opportunity for a holy standing for you and I before God. But the trajectory toward the end of that week is certainly not that holy as it relates to the treatment of Jesus. And so in Mark 12, we're in the context of tension and conflict and verbal brawls, verbal tussles with Jesus concerning ultimately the matter of who's boss? Who's boss? Who's the boss 
of, of God's city, Jerusalem? Who's the boss of God's house, the temple? Who's the boss of God's opinions, his views on life? Who interprets what God has said in his word? Who's the boss of this nation, Israel, and all of mankind? Your life, my life. Who's the boss of life? Ultimately, and quite ironically, the, the clashes are coming from Bible-believing, churchy-type people who will not have a donkey-riding carpenter from the backwoods of Galilee as boss, as king. Donkey wasn't even his. <laughs> Borrowed. And now that I said donkey, you're back to Shrek. <laughs> I know you all too well. Listen, I'm familiar with a good verbal tussle myself. There's Scots-Irish blood. Our, our blood runs a little warmer than most. I was getting a little bit tense when Dana was talking about the IRA. What? For those of, I'm like, hang on a minute. I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, Northern Ireland. No, I, I'm familiar for, with a little verbal tussle at home and not with my wife. We've decided a long time ago that she's going to let me be the boss most of the time. It's really from the four little challengers that have popped out in the last decade in our lives, all of them upset with the state of affairs in the home and who's going to be the boss of their little lives. And each one of them has a good go at me. I've managed to quash three, but my fourth, my youngest, has turned three. And the game is on. And he uses his, his food flinging and little tantrums here and there and his charming little smile to disarm me and to take control of the Murphy household, to show us who's boss there. In fact, we came back from Northern Ireland two weeks ago. We were there over the summer and we were all jet lagged. You know, we were getting up very, very early in the morning because our body clocks were later on into the day, and the other morning, he met me very early, it was still sort of semi-dark, with an ice pop lolly, you know, like an ice pop lolly? Uh, he somehow, <laughs> and we're good parents, so I don't know how he got it, we didn't give it to him for breakfast, uh, but he found me, he went looking for me to show me that he had this neon yellow ice pop lolly, and he waved it in my face, and he said, ha ha. That's, that's, that's him showing me who's boss. Uh, it's in three-year-olds. And it's also not just in three-year-olds. I was reading about a Norwegian scholar in the 1920s who was scratching his head about what to do his PhD research on. And as he looked out the window uh, at this farm that he was at, he, he realized, I should sort of study chickens. And that's what he did. He studied chickens. And what he realized as he observed them is that when you throw a whole bunch of hands or chickens into a chicken coop that have never been together, they very quickly organize themselves into some sort of hierarchy. They establish a sort of hand social ladder of who's boss over whom. I'm over you, but I'm not over you. And 
And, and they don't use food flinging and, you know, disarming little smiles to project who's boss over whom. What they do is they puff out their chests and they peck at each other. They peck for dominance. Peck, 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 peck. That's what they do. And that, from, that, from that, our phrase in English, the pecking order emerges. Right? A pecking order is an order, a hierarchy, that we use to organize ourselves socially. Who's boss over me? Who am I boss over someone else? So it's not just in three-year-olds, and it's not just in chickens, because that's all over Mark 12. Take those two imageries into Mark 12 with you. Jesus has stepped into Jerusalem. This is the not-so-holy part of Holy Week, and the game is on. The religious establishment are not happy with his claims. They're not happy with the fact that the crowd is gathering around him. And so what do they do? They peck at him. Peck, 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 peck. There are four verbal pecks at Jesus in Mark 12, uh, the end of 11 and into 12. He's not welcome. He's not wanted. He still isn't in our society, generally. The religious establishment, of course, don't use their beaks. They, at this point in the week, use Bible conundrums, tricky little questions, uh, Issues that are inflammatory, if he answers it this way, he's going to get trouble with this lot. But if he answers it this way, he's going to get in trouble with this other lot. Either way, Jesus is in trouble. So they're pecking at Jesus. And let's be fair to this crew. I mean, they peck because Jesus pecks back. Jesus rode into Jerusalem in chapter 11 on a donkey. And he went into the temple and he flung a few tables around. And he cracked the whip. And he had a few choice words for the religious establishment. Like, Murphy paraphrase, you're a whole bunch of hypocrites. You look all nice, but it's a facade. In fact, you're transacting off of the back of God and robbing the nations of coming to know him. So Jesus doesn't hold back, and neither should he, right? Satan and sin have humanity by the throat. God's not going to have that because God's boss and God cares and his reputation is at stake. So what I want you to understand is that the context is inflammatory. Study it at some point for yourselves at home. At the end of 11 and into 12, you'll see the first pecking incident, which is essentially a challenge that could be phrased as this, Jesus, who made you boss? Who made you boss? And Jesus tells them a parable. And the parable essentially says, God, I'm God's son. In the second little incident in, in Mark 12, there are a very familiar passage where, where they ask Jesus about paying taxes, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they're trying to trap him. And, and, and essentially, it's an issue of loyalty. Who gets our loyalty? And Jesus, uh, very clearly and very intelligently, essentially, says that's another easy one, God. If you bear the image of God and every human being does, then God gets your loyalty. The third one on in there is, a, is the little riddle that the, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection bring toward Jesus concerning marriage once there is a resurrection. 
It's a riddle. They, they want to mock him. And essentially, they're saying, Jesus isn't what you teach quite silly. And Jesus says, no, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Well, well the, the next one, the fourth incident, is the one I want to focus on. And essentially asks and answers the question, Jesus, what does God want? What is it that God wants from us? What is it that God wants from you and from me as, as believers who spend a week in a beautiful place like this called Mount Hermon around God's Word? As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what is it that he wants from his followers? So let me walk you through this passage and, uh, and highlight a few things for you. So verse 28 begins the contest. Remember, that's the fourth contest. Now, I don't have an outline for you, but if you like to scribble on the side of your Bible like I do, write contest beside verse 28. That's what this is. And one of the scribes came up and he heard them, that's Jesus and the religious leaders, disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment's the most important of all? So we have another Bible expert. That's what a scribe is. A scribe is somebody who knows his Bible, who has taken classes in, in Bible, who has uh, developed a career in becoming a Bible scholar, particularly as it relates to the law of God. This guy knows his Bible. This guy has some degree hanging somewhere that proves that he has advanced level training in Bible. He's watched Jesus. He's eavesdropped into the previous conversation and he's been very, very impressed. Jesus is good. So he steps into the coop himself and he puffs out his chest and he goes after Jesus. Now, Mark's presentation of it seems a little bit more passive, but from Matthew's account, we know that there's a little bit of pecking going on here, that this chap has been sent to test Jesus. That's a great question that is asked. It's one that actually is all over their version of of theological conversations. If they had journals, that was in it. If they had blogs where they discussed questions, this question was in it. Which commandment is the most important? Essentially, this chap wants to know the theological caliber of this radical rabbi. Simplify it for us, Jesus. Show us that you really do know God. God seems to want a whole bunch of stuff with all the Bible books that he's given us. With all those verses he wants us to memorize in Awana. We need, we need a little bit of help, Jesus. Give it to us in one. What would you say, Jesus, if, I, if you were to in, include yourself in this conversation? See, what they knew, what these scholars knew back then, is that there are 613 laws of God in the Old Testament scriptures. They believed in their conversations that King David got it down to 11 in Psalm 15. They also believed that Moses got it down to 10, the Ten Commandments. And they were right. The Ten Commandments are really a, a generalized version of what the 613 commandments are all about. They believed that Isaiah got it down to 6. They believed that Micah 
got it down to three. They believed that Habakkuk actually got it down to one, that the righteous shall live by faith or by faithfulness. But, but that's a little vague. That doesn't help me when I get up in the morning and I you know, brush my hair, brush my teeth for two minutes. You're meant to brush your teeth for two minutes, by the way. That's, that's healthy dental care for you for free. And, and, and find matching socks and, and head out the door to the, to the office or, or to wherever it is you work or, or stay at home and, and, and dress and groom and look after your own little challengers that God has given you. 613 is a lot to remember. So what does God want? It's, it's, it's a fantastic question. I, I, in fact, I think it's a brilliant question, not just a, a good question. I get up in the mornings and I, I head out the door and I groom myself and, and, and I'm trying to figure out, Lord, I want to honor you today, so I need to read my Bible and I need to make sure that I, I learn a verse a day because I went to camps that keeps the devil away, right? A verse a day keeps the devil away. As Dr. Bailey alluded, I speak Spanish. I grew up in Spain as a missionary kid. Now, that's, that's hard to understand in light of my Shrek-like Northern Irish accent. But I grew up, I grew up in a Christian home. And, and it can get so confusing when you've been sort of groomed in the way of Christ for so long. It feels like I get out into my day with 613 things that I have to remember to do to try and keep God happy. What's the greatest of all? So let's look at that and answer that. What does God want? What does he want from me? Look at verses 29 to 33. Again, if you like to mark things in your Bible, write command there. We've got a contest. No, we have a command. Look at verse uh, 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these. So it's a very familiar uh, passage to us as Christians, one that we can easily miss every morning when we're brushing our teeth for two minutes. Uh, what Jesus does is he essentially superglues two passages together. This is a textbook answer for this scribe, he, he, he gets this. He knows the Old Testament. The first passage that he's quoting is, of course, the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. This scribe's and Israel's life's motto. They recite it every morning. They recite it every evening as a daily reminder of life's center. Where I live out of. Right? It's a daily declaration that I will only love God and that I will completely love God. I will only love you and I will completely love you. Every second of the day, every cell in my body, every sweat drop of activity that my body produces will be devoted to you, just to you in love. Every thought that I have, 
will be censored by, by that commitment to you. Every word that comes out of my mouth will be guarded by that principle that I am to only love you and I'm to love you completely with all that I am. Note in verse 30, all, 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 four times. Again, if you like to scribble in your Bible, scribble, circle that. All, 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 very, very clear. In fact, in the entire section, nine times are we told that it's all. I will only love you, God, and I will completely love you, God. Textbook answer, but very easily forgotten when you get in the, up in the morning and you brush your hair and you brush your teeth for two minutes and you find matching socks and you head out into your day because it's going to be busy. So that's the first passage, and then he glues it to the second one, Leviticus 19, 18. That that love, that love only for God and completely to God, will be expressed in how you treat whoever's beside you. Even if they took your seat this morning, and you've been coming to Mount Hermon for years as well, and that's your seat, and they got it. That, that, that I get to love whoever's sitting beside me. That if you love God, it's visible. You can't hide love for God. You can't hide it. It expresses itself. And, and whoever happens to be around you, whoever your neighbor is, and this isn't self-love in the kind of arrogant sense, you know, love them the way you love yourself and you love yourself. This is love them in the way that you naturally love yourself. You, you all got up this morning brushed your hair, put on some perfume or deodorant, brushed your teeth, and presented yourselves in a way that's beautiful, right? Care for other people the way you care for yourself naturally as a human being. Love God and love people. And that kind of love is, is not just any kind of love. In fact, in English, we do a massive disservice to uh, the word love. The concept of love, the act of love, right? We, we have one word that tries to do multiple duty. Like if I take my wife out for a nice romantic meal uh, to an Italian res restaurant and, and I look into her beautiful brown eyes and I say, love, I love you. And then I put a fork full of pasta in my mouth and go, I love pasta. It's a little bit of a disservice to my wife. We try and make love do too much in English, not, not, not in the Greek. In the Greek, there's different words for the type of love that one is trying to communicate, right? You know this. There's a love that you would use for the expression of your care and, and closeness with your buddies. I love you guys. There's a love that you would use that's romantic love with your spouse, and of course, there's the famous agape love, that costly love, that love that essentially says, I would die for you and regret not being able to do it all over again. It's the love that you have for those closest to you. It's the love that you have for your spouse or your children. It's a costly, unconditional love. That's the kind of love that's being declared here in the Shema. This costly love. So, so David got it to 11. Moses got it to 10. Isaiah got it to 6. Micah got it to 3. Habakkuk got it to 1. But that's not exactly too helpful on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the details. So what does Jesus say? Well, he does get it 
down to one. No other commandment singular greater than these. I know it sounds like two, but they're inseparable. They're indivisible. Jesus says they're one. You cannot have one and ignore the other. I, I don't know how many of you are Texan, but I tell my Texan friends that this is like chips and salsa. <laughs> you all had Tex-Mex. They go together. You don't go into a restaurant, Tex-Mex restaurant, and go, I'll just have the salsa and please bring me a spoon because I'd love to just spoon the salsa into me. I, you know, the, 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 the chips are salty and dry. Without the salsa, they're not so good. They, they come together. Love for God and love for people are inseparable. So what's the command of Jesus if you're taking notes? It's this. Exclusive, exhaustive, expensive, love for God expressed through other people. Exclusive. It's just God. And there are alternatives to your love. Exhaustive. It's, it's complete. All, 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 all. And it's expensive, it's agape love, it's costly. It might hurt. And it's, it's, it's toward him, but the way you can on a daily basis manifest that is with those around you. So you can take that as your application for this morning. And I'm going to sort of stick it to a nice little visual for you. Every morning this week, when you get up, brush your hair, Brush your teeth for two minutes. You've got two minutes to tell the Lord, how can I love you today with exclusive and exhaustive and expensive love? Because I'm a follower of you, Jesus. Help me do that. You can't say you love God in isolation from those who are around you. You, you, you express genuine love for God precisely through those who are around you. They're indivisible, chips and salsa. Now, just in case you missed that, look at verse 32 to 33. And the scribe said to him, massive understatement, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him and that to love him with all the heart and all the understanding with all our strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is literarily intentional textual repetition. This is driving a point deeper and deeper into the reader's mind. You heard it. He wants you to love God and love people. But let me say it all over again in case you missed it. Love God and love people. And now it's on the lips of, of this scribe. This, this scribe agrees with Jesus. He agrees with Jesus, and, but he makes a very insightful little addition. He doesn't requote back to Jesus exactly what Jesus said. He adds a little bit, and that little bit that he adds exposes his growing understanding of what Jesus is saying, which is why in a few moments you're going to see that Jesus commends him. For it. He said that that is more than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. See, God did give his people a whole bunch of books to read and rituals to practice and festivities to celebrate 
and laws to abide by. And, 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 and they, they were all to be expressions of, of an honor to him. He says a lot about life in general, including the music they were to play, the way they were to build their temples and tabernacles, etc. God has given them lots of information. They have their verses to memorize and their little churchy activities to practice, but, but they're meaningless unless they're an expression of this faith-filled agape love to God expressed through people. That what you have said, Jesus, is more important than all the other stuff put together if it's not the product of love for God and love for people. Without that, all these good godly churchy activities, which they are to do, are somewhat meaningless. They're empty. They're, they're just noise. If I can borrow Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, it's just noise you're making when it's not the, the overflow of a certain type of love. So in the spirit of the text's intentional repetition, let me say it all over again. Exclusive, exhaustive, expensive love toward God is expressed through whoever's sitting beside you, even though they stole your seat. It's total love. And total love is evident. It cannot be hidden. Remember that tomorrow morning when you're brushing your teeth for two minutes. God wants all of you always. All of you always. Now, it's dangerous to get things just slightly wrong. Uh, to be a little bit off has huge consequences, which is precisely what happens as we move into the final little verse in this section. We've seen a contest, which is the greatest commandment. What does God want from me? Jesus. You've, you've seen uh, Jesus express it through a command. He wants all of you. He wants exhaustive, uh, exclusive, expensive love. And now we have Jesus' commendation to this chap. Right? That beside verse 34. It's a commendation, but it comes with a warning. Look what he says. And when Jesus saw that he, that is this chap, had answered wisely, that he was recognizing that good churchy activities only count, right, if they're ex expressions of love, right? When he had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No surprise there. Right? The four pecking sessions have ended. Their plan now is to, to kill him. Their plan was to kill him all along. But, but, but they retreat a little bit from this point forward. This Bible expert, this scribe, pecked at Jesus only to realize that Jesus is right. And that Jesus might actually be boss of life of Jerusalem, of the temple, of Israel, of God's opinions. Jesus, in turn, acknowledges that this chap is not far off, that he's close. That even though he has Bible degree in hand and looks all churchy with all his churchy activities, that he's still distant. Right? Being not far means that you're not in. You're distant, but you're close. My friends, that's not where you want to be. That's, that's not where you want to be. Not far is not safe. 
This can be taken two ways. In one way, not far is not safe if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're at a camp like Mount Hermon. If you've never personally trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never received personally his forgiveness, then you're not far. I mean, you're at a great Bible camp, but, but that doesn't mean you're in. You've got to personally come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but we can take that in a second direction, which is the one I want to focus on as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can get up every morning and have 613 good churchy activities to be a part of. But if it's not a product of love for God and love for whoever is beside you, it's, it's meaningless to you. It might be helpful to your church and to the community but it's meaningless to you. I, I told you we were just back from Northern Ireland a few weeks ago, and we got to spend uh, about a week and a half in a little town called Port Stewart, which is in the north of Northern Ireland, right beside where the big golf tournament was just a few weeks ago. If you follow golf, the Open is in Port Rush. Well, Port Stewart is like a mile beside it. So it's a beautiful little spot. That's, that's my retreat place. That's where I can't wait to get to every summer. And you, you walk down this little village right beside the sea. And this is all the little villages in Northern Ireland. There's always a monument to the fallen in the Great War and the Second World War. And this particular monument has a soldier and he's got his rifle. Right? And you've got all the names of the guys from that town who died in the Great War and in the Second World War. And it always intrigues me because he was a rifleman. And my granddad, who I never met, he died because of the Second World War, was a rifleman. He was in the Scottish Rifle Regiment, the Cameronians. So, so I love it. We, we go there and, and we walk past and we call him Rifleman Murphy. Right, because of, it's just a nod to my granddad, Rifleman Murphy. Now, as I did a little bit of digging, because my dad has his, his sort of uh, army book, uh, I, I realized that he was at Dunkirk. Now, if you know anything about military history, Dunkirk was a, a huge moment in the Second World War. Uh, the Nazis swept across France. The, the British responded by sending in the British Expeditionary Force into France, but they were pushed back to Dunkirk, the coast of France. 400,000 young men in the beach, essentially just waiting to be shot at by the, by the German military. They were trapped. And when they were, when they were trapped there, including Rifleman Murphy, my, my granddad, they could see just 10 miles away, the British coastline. The big, massive white cliffs of Dover. They were close. They were not far, but they were not safe. Of course, you know the rest of the story, right? That, 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 that this miraculous event occurs where thousands of little fishing boats come and rescue them from, from the shores. Churchill himself used language of the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, to describe the, the miracle of Dunkirk. Not far is not where you want to be, certainly if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not living in light of the very simple teaching on a daily basis that it's all about loving God through people through whoever's beside you, exclusive, 
exhaustive, expensive love. So, Jesus entered Jerusalem that last week like uh, he entered planet Earth first time around as a humble servant king. No chariots, no army, no regal robes, no display of power, no wealth, no followers on Twitter, just riding a borrowed donkey. But make no mistake about it, despite appearances, he is boss. He is boss. He's in charge of life in Jerusalem, then in, in Mount Hermon today. Three-year-olds think they're the boss. Forty-year-olds think they're the boss. Seventy-year-olds think they're the boss. Ninety-year-olds think they're the boss. Norwegian chickens think they're the boss. They're not. Jesus Christ is still Lord. And if we can tighten the screw a little bit, that means he dictates life. And he still dictates life. That he defines marriage and determines the parameters of sexuality, etc., etc., etc. And that we get to follow after him, only him, and completely devoted to him. And he's not shaken by another generation that pops out wanting to challenge the boss. He's the boss, not me, not you. And every morning this week, as you brush your teeth for two minutes, you got two minutes to be able to reflect on that. Lord, how can I today, with all the stuff that I'm going to do, love you through other people exhaustively and expensively and exclusively? Amen? That's what we want, total love. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you've given it to us so that on a daily basis we can recalibrate our lives around it. Father, I do pray that if there's someone here who has never personally trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would continue to pursue them this week. That they will come to a realization that just because they grew up perhaps in a Christian home and memorized Christian verses and are at a Christian camp, that that doesn't mean they're in that they could be in dangerous territory, that they're not safe. I pray that all of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have one point entrusted ourselves to you through him, that on a daily basis we will rise with a commitment to live in love for you as we engage with those around us. We need your help. We know that your spirit has been provided to help us to that end. Help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen.